Hundreds of people gathered last night to discuss the problems plaguing Alice Springs. It was really a disgusting show of white supremacy. The public broadcaster made it all about race. It was fake news. This is our home. This is where we live. This is what we deal with every day of the week. This is not a racial issue. And you're trying to portray it in the wrong manner. Well, did you have you any Indigenous people speaking at your meeting last night? We had eight traditional owners of the Arunta land come and speak with us and they've put their name to be a part of the group that's part of us to move forward. Did they speak at the meeting, though? No. The federal opposition says it's committed to attending more meetings of the referendum working group on an Indigenous voice to parliament. It's obviously a political strategy by the PM not to put that detail out, but I think the pressure continues for him to put it out so that people can make an informed decision. The minister in charge of social services at the height of the robo-debt scandal, Christian Porter, has told the Royal Commission investigating the, the failed scheme he was assured it was legal. People recognise that this cherished institution is in real strife. I've said it, it's in the worst shape it's been in the 40-year history of Medicare. Walking humbly in the footsteps of our Lord, that's the heroic virtue that makes him, to my mind, a saint for our times. The rap. The rap. Joining me to wrap up the week in news is columnist and academic Dr Jenna Price and foreign editor with the Australian newspaper Greg Sheridan. Welcome to you both. Hello. Good to be with you both. <laughs> First of all, on Catholic schools, Jenna, just when we were all relaxed, finally waving our little darlings off to school on Tuesday after many, many, oh, so many weeks of school holidays, you threw out the, su the suggestion that we should defund private schools. And this was made in the wake of the Four Corners um, on Monday into Opus Dei schools, because to you, this all comes down to values. Is that right? Yes, I think, I mean, I'd like to declare here that I am very happily married to a um, former student of Riverview uh, whose values seem to be absolutely aligned with mine and I adore him. But I think some things have gone off the rails and not just in the schools we're looking at uh, that we looked at on Monday night, which was horrifying and terrifying. And I'm pretty sure Greg will agree with me on that. But um, you know, things keep coming up in private schools, which we don't see the same kind of um, terrifying systemic representation of in the media. So there's not a private boys' school uh, either in New South Wales or in Victoria that hasn't had some terrible sex scandal. Um, and, uh, I mean, not just against young boys doing it against young girls, but against young boys doing it against teachers. And those things, those things are telling me that there's something really warped with the values. Now, maybe it would be enough to do a kind of... Um, curriculum audit. Uh, maybe it would be enough. In fact, I would be very happy to see the vaccination rates uh, of every school in Australia because it really horrified me to discover that the girls at Tangara were being advised not to have the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is life-saving. Um, you know, I was furious when Barnaby Joyce um, uh, said that he didn't want to make Gardasil free. Uh, because that's consigning women to, to death. Um, and what uh, Tangara was doing was discouraging their students from having that vaccine. So um, maybe a values audit, a curriculum audit, um, a vaccination audit, maybe then we can keep private schools because I just think we are spending a lot of money on these schools and I don't think they add value to the community. Well, Greg, what do you think? Does there need to be an overhaul of the private school sector? Uh, do you think they're upholding or promoting the wrong kind of values? 
No, no. I, so I'd respectfully disagree with Jen, Jenna there altogether. Um, I happen to know those Tangara and Redfield schools pretty well. I think they're fine schools and all the people I know who've been there and who are involved with them are excellent people. I'd recommend them without hesitation. Did you watch got the four quarters of, on Monday night? Uh, so uh, are we allowed... We get into this program, we're allowed to finish whole sentences. You uh, are. You that, are, that, Greg. I will that, I will that, hold that, my fire. Please finish your sentence. <laughs> okay. So, um, no, I think they're fine schools. And I think overall the private schools are absolutely fantastic. I mean, um, you know, I spent my life at a Christian Brothers School, so did Major General Peter Cosgrove. Seems to me his values are all right. Private schools confer an enormous subsidy on the taxpayer. So the taxpayer pays a tiny fraction for each student at a private school as they do at a state school. Now, at lots and lots of different schools over the centuries of Australian life, people have said some stupid things and um, they get corrected. And uh, the Tangara people say they're, they're warmly recommending all those vaccines to all their students these days. I, I'd certainly be opposed to any school that didn't, uh, that didn't recommend a vaccine. But also private schools are already subject to very rigorous um, examination. And, uh, you know, the truth is institutions across the society have uh, records of very bad things happening in them. This is certainly true of state institutions as well. I mean, at the Christian Brothers School I went to and where I sent my sons, the principal said to me one day, he said, oh, we're welcoming a new family in next week. Uh, I'd like you to be a bit nice to them. I said, oh, yeah, what's, what's their story? I said, it's a Buddhist family. I said, oh, that's great. It was a Catholic school, of course. My sons happen to be Sikhs, lots of people of different religions there. And I said, why, why are we, um, that's great, that's great. What, what are their circumstances? He said, well, one of the boys is being very badly bullied at the state school that he's attending. And they've asked us if we'll look after them. And they said, yeah, of course. And the principal said, of course, of course, they're very welcome here. And we'll make sure they're not bullied here. Now, that that story would be repeated a million times across Australia. I thought the Four Corners stuff was terribly sensationalist. And I think Louise Milligan's reporting is really an embarrassment to the ABC. And I don't accept as proven fact every everything that was stated in that report because that hasn't been the case with previous sensationalist reports. But overall, I think the private school sector makes a magnificent contribution to Australia. I, well, I only wish that we could be sure that children weren't bullied at private schools as well and then sent off to public schools who have to mop up the problem. Sure, I'm sure I, it happens So the thing ways. I want to say, I, I was just having a little chat here. The thing I want to say is that um, private schools uh, get more funding from um, the state sector than they do from the public sector. So it's easier to from the government because it, and it's easier to say, oh, they get a fraction. They do get a fraction of federal funding, but they get a massive amount of state funding. And I just think uh, that it's if the we, other way around. It's, uh, it's the other way around, yeah. Jenna. Whichever way it is, I think we. That's right. It is the other way around. Whichever way it is, I think we have to say to ourselves, we are just going to fund every child equally. Uh, we are not going to have a system where the um, where the uh, where children get schools with so much... Um, I mean, I was walking past Cranbrook the other day, Greg, and I was walking from the Wollara Art Gallery along um, old uh, New South Head Road and I thought to myself, how is it that a school like this has grounds right next to the waterfront, has, you know, performing arts this and indoor that and 
And public schools don't have anything like that. My daughter teaches at a school where they're in demountables. I, I just, it, it doesn't seem to be equitable to me. Um, and it's not, it's lovely that um, you're very confident. I'm not sure that the kind of values that we are seeing replicated, and I, I must say that I have found, uh, I found that um, Milligan report on Monday to be really fantastic, very convincing, because I have taught kids from those schools uh, and they've come up with very unusual um, arguments or ideas. In fact, this whole idea about um, Gardasil encouraging promiscuity, that's not the first time I'd heard that argument. Mm. I mean, of course, we heard it from... I just want to ask ask Greg one more thing, Jenna, if we can. On that Opus Day Four Corners report, the New South Wales Education Standards Authority is now investigating the schools in question. You said you would recommend these schools without any doubts whatsoever, Tangara, Redfield and so on. Do you not put any weight on that New South Wales Education Standards Authority, Authority investigation? Sure, sure I do, but I have this incredibly anachronistic dinosaur-like attitude I'd like to see the result of the investigation before I made a judgment about the so investigation. the fact of so the investigation if, does not give you pause for concern? Well, uh, allegations were made, which may or may not be true, and if the school were today advising people against taking vaccines, that would be very disturbing. The school says they're not doing that. They say they recommend their kids to take the vaccines, but... Um, if everyone who is investigated is judged before the investigation even begins. So, you know, media companies have an enormous amount of power and no one has more power than the ABC. So if you generate an investigation by running a campaign, and you'd have to say Louise Milligan is running a fantastically anti-Catholic campaign and anti-conservative campaign all through her reporting... So be it. A lot of people, uh, you know, Dan Andrews is Catholic and I think his comments on the Cardinal Pell matter have been utterly disgraceful, refusing to endorse the High Court's judgment and so forth and defaming Pell in death. But what I'm I saying, let me, let me finish the point. If you, you can't legally, but you can morally. And uh, But let me finish the point. Final, final if you're thoughts, I do want to ask another question about another topic. Well, I'd have been finished if I'd been allowed to finish the sentence. <laughs> if, if, you, if you are saying that merely because you generate an investigation. You can run a terrific media campaign, kicking the guts out of whoever it is you hate, in Louise Milligan's case, the Catholic Church, and then you generate an investigation. And that is enough to make you make a judgment that the person being investigated is guilty. I have this very old-fashioned idea that you actually wait and see what the results of the investigation are first. Great All right, three. Jenna, no, 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 we are moving on. <laughs> we are, I am right, winding you right up. All right, Alice Springs. Unfortunately, the ABC has found itself in the middle of a news story this week over its coverage of a town meeting in Alice Springs on Monday night. We actually had the convener of that meeting on this show on Iron Drive where he said his intention was to garner support for a class action against the NT government to the tune of $1.5 billion to compensate businesses and property owners who've suffered damage as a result of soaring crime. The criticism of other ABC reports was that the reporting elevated the voices of people who claimed that this town hall meeting convened by this man was a gathering of white supremacists uh, and that we didn't hear from a broader range of attendees at that meeting. Greg, at this point, do we really have a clear picture of what's going on on the ground in Alice? Well, I think there's been some great reporting uh, out of Alice Springs. And, you know, let me say, I think the ABC does a lot of fantastic reporting. 
Um, I didn't think those people were racist just because they had their meeting and they had to shut the meeting down early because there were protesters there. So maybe if the meeting had gone for more than 20 minutes, a wider variety of people would have been heard. But we've certainly heard from Aboriginal leaders like Marion Scridgemore and uh, Jacinta Price and, and many other people. And now we've had this report from the woman appointed by Albanese to look into the uh, to the violence uh, uh, and disorder. Obviously, what's happening in Alice Springs is a terrible tragedy. It certainly does have long-term causes, but a lot of community leaders whom I respect, like Marion Scrimgeour and Jacinda Price, have said it was a mistake to remove the grog bans. And, you know, the most terrible and terrifying statistic I heard was that there are, I think, 16 uh, intensive care unit beds in the hospital and 14 of them are occupied by Aboriginal women who have been beaten severely in domestic violence cases. So I think the rights of those Aboriginal women not to be beaten is is among the most important rights. And it's, it's not a simple solution, but I think the attention which the media has focused on the whole matter has been just what the media should be doing. It'd be a terrible thing if we weren't paying attention to mm. Alice Springs. Jenna, you've been teaching journalism for a very long time as well as practising it yourself. Some of the complaints from people who live in Alice this week were that these were the reports of fly-in, fly-out journalists. Did they have a point? I think which what really worried me was just replicating that um, grab which called the meeting white supremacist. That's a really strange choice of term. I, I mean, there is a real and profound difference between entrenched white privilege, which is something which needs to be explored and examined and interrogated, and using the expression white supremacist, which, uh, you know, means a totally different thing. And I, I thought that was pretty unfortunate. I think most of the reporting's been very good, as Greg said. Um, I would say that we urgently need to pour a lot of money into the NT and and Greg, uh, grog bans may or may not work, but... Uh, First of all, we need to sort out housing. We cannot have such overcrowded housing and expect people to be able to live in uh, a really good manner. We have to really also sort out education levels in the NT. I mean, it's dramatically urgent need. We need specialists who can reach Indigenous families, uh, teach in a way which is congruent with First Nations values and get their ASAP. Once we sort out education and housing, I reckon the rest is going to flow through. But what's happening there now is that they are, uh, I mean, honestly, third and fourth world conditions in some communities. If you just tuned in, um, here we are on Iron Drive with journalist Dr Jenna Price and Greg Sheridan from The Australian. And we are wrapping the week now on the issue of Rugg versus Ryan. Parliament will sit for the first time next week with a very busy agenda, as per usual. But this week we learned that TLMP Dr Monique Ryan's Chief of Staff, Sally Rugg, filed an application to the Federal Court accusing the Commonwealth of hostile conduct and claiming that her boss caused her to be terminated for refusing to work unreasonable additional hours. Now, this afternoon... Both parties have recently reached an agreement. Sally Rugg will not be sacked and they've agreed to enter into mediation. Jenna, you've been writing a lot about this and you are of the view that the Prime Minister needs to cop some of the responsibility for this. Why? Well, um, just after the election, uh, he decided to remove some staff from Teal's offices. And he said he was doing it because um, uh, Scott Morrison had given too many staff to... Um, uh, cross benches in the hope of, you know, perk barrelling them. And I 
would argue that they probably needed to keep those staff anyhow. They have a really hard job. They don't have a they don't have a hierarchy. They don't have an infrastructure that can do the research for them. They don't have a minister who's an expert in Medicare or a minister who's an expert in communication. So they have to do all the research themselves. They are very understaffed. There is a um, so removing that staff, I think, would have exacerbated the problem. That staff member would have exacerbated the problem. There is a uh, the other bigger problem is that. I'm sure um, the Prime Minister thinks back to his days of working in Tom Uren's electorate office and, you know, lovely and gentle. But um, those were the days when um, uh, electorates were about 30% smaller in terms of voter numbers than they are now. Uh, and we didn't have a kind of avalanche of being connected via Twitter, Instagram, email. I mean, we did have email, but it wasn't the insanity that it is now. So <laughs> the workload for electoral, electorate staff has, I would say, tripled. Uh, constituent uh, expectations have tripled. And uh, and then they've the Teals and other backbenchers, uh, crossbenchers have got the... Um, problem of having to deal with all this information on their own. So they need more staff. They, and that's that's going to be better for democracy. Um, Bill Brown from the Australia Institute did a, um, a report last year where he said, you know, um, we will have a properly, function, uh, properly functioning democracy when all our um, parliamentary staff, electorate staff and um, parliamentarians themselves <clears throat> are able to be uh, are able to remain connected to their families. I am really thrilled that Rugg and Ryan have come to a kind of mediation. My fantasy was that it would happen and it would be okay, and they would, you know, maybe job share, maybe have times when people are on and off. But um, I think that uh, it's too hard. It really is too hard. They cannot be working. 18 hours a day and not have a break. Greg, what do you think? Does does the Prime Minister have any responsibility for what happens in Monique Ryan's office, first of all? And secondly, is there a generational thing happening here? I mean, politics has always demanded uh, above and beyond from those in it, but younger generations are less willing to accept what they see as overweening demands from their bosses. Yeah, I think there's something in that. So I, I think Jenna made very, very good points. But I'd say in principle, I hold the view that all backbenchers should have the same number of staff. I think it's undemocratic otherwise, because then you advantage one backbencher as against another. But maybe all backbenchers should have another staff or two. But um, the generational thing is fascinating. A very great friend of mine, who would be very well known to your listeners, filed stories on the day that she gave birth, um, I, I think probably from the Labor ward. I won't embarrass her by saying uh, by saying who it was. I, I know I myself on the day I got married. Uh, we got married in the morning. We had a little lunch at a friend's house, and I said to my beloved, "Now, darling, you won't mind. I have to go and file a column now." And uh, we had a we had a honeymoon. We were having a week in Penang, and an Islamist leader I'd been tracking for a long time said he could see me on the Friday. So I said, "Well, look, you don't mind that we cut our honeymoon." Short, do you? I, I, I mean, you have a very understanding wife. Your I do wife indeed. is adorable. I, mean, she, I need to meet her. Honestly, she's a she, saint. She, not only that, I mean, <clears throat> she ended up with a very crook husband. But anyway, there you go. It, um, the the sense that politics and journalism were just total lifestyles didn't always produce the loveliest people. Although I love mm. everyone in my profession, but 
um, <laughs> the the insane sort of, you know, being on all the time, 24 hours a day. Jenna is absolutely right that social media and everything have made it much worse. I mean, when I started in journalism, the ethic was if the editor could get you on the phone, you were on a bound to respond to his request, but you weren't on a bound to sit by a phone. Well, of course, now the phone is with you every second of every day yeah. and people expect you to answer your emails and your texts, you know, they get quite cross with you if you don't. I don't mind people putting some boundaries around it, although, um, you know, political staffers, they do get paid an allowance and I'm not, I'm not criticising the people in this dispute because I know nothing about the particulars, but staffers generally get an allowance of about $30,000 a year to cover um, irregular work hours and the so on, uh, but you've got to work out a compromise uh, within each office. I think the the best thing I heard in the, while I was researching for that column is that uh, the Prime Minister is actually going to add an extra staff member at the budget. I think that's a really great thing. Um, and I guess the other thing I want to say is that um, we have to recognise uh, that people have changed generationally. I saw a really fantastic play on uh, Wednesday night called A Broadcast Coup by Melanie Tate and the young woman in it, the character's called Noah, is an exact example of uh, that millennial generation refusing to just give everything up to the to the uh, institution or the industry and just talking back in a way that even I, a notorious talker backer, would have struggled to do 30 or 40 years ago. Speaking of the quality of life and work-life balance, I happen to know that both of you are very proud grandparents. So first of all, there is a time limit on this segment, about two minutes. Oh, God. Keep it tight, people. Uh, but there was this great piece uh, from The Economist, which is in the Fin Review, of course. Uh, apparently, the ratio of living grandparents to children is the highest it's ever been. And this is having a profound impact on how our children are cared for and also how people are spending their later years. Greg, you still have a pretty full-on job. Do you do a lot of babysitting? Uh, no, but I'm very jealous to get more time with the grandkids. So I've got three sons whom I love and admire, but I, I must say I like their kids more than them, not just because of the age, but I think they're nicer people on the whole. And <laughs> I've worked out how to be totally popular with my grandkids. I simply do whatever they tell them. I've got two <laughs> two girls and two boys, and whatever they tell me, I, I, I do it absolutely. I contramand the, the <laughs> dictates of their parents, and I in, encourage their rule-breaking. The only rule is safety. Other than that, I'm with them in every act of subversion, rebellion, and self-realisation uh, that they can imagine in their, in their small young lives. We spend as much time as we can with our grandchildren. We have one full day a week with them. Uh, we have uh, one afternoon <clears throat> and then another morning. Um, you know, the thing that the reason we love our grandchildren so much is that we have a con common enemy, their parents, our children. And I would yeah. say wow. that. <laughs> wow. I would you say both that. cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I am, um, I am, so I didn't have grandparents. All of my parents, all of my grandparents died in the Holocaust. I um, didn't have, yeah, I didn't have the opportunity to give that to my children. I'm so happy to give grandparenting to my grandchildren. Love them wildly. Very lucky. Thank you, Jenna Price and Foreign Editor with The Australian, Greg Sheridan. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.